Scripture this afternoon is from Peter's first letter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And if you've got one of those blue pew Bibles, you can find that on page 1016. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. God. Have a seat. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, as we come to you this afternoon, uh, there are many things uh, for us to join our hearts together uh, in prayer for, for your church um, here in this country and and around the world. Um, We are grateful um, to have been spared uh, the brunt um, of of this storm. Uh, We're thankful for your protection. We, We are mindful um, of those to our south and west um, who have been hit harder. We pray for safety uh, for them. Uh, Father, we particularly think of, uh, of other churches uh, that we know uh, here in our, in our presbytery, churches in New Haven, uh, in Coventry, in Manchester, in, in West Springfield, and, and several others that are, that are more on the path of Henri. Lord, would you watch over them, uh, guard them, keep them safe, uh, allow them to, um, to worship you, uh, if they haven't already uh, today. Lord, we, we pray also um, for uh, the nation of Afghanistan. Um, Father, you are a God of, of order uh, and of beauty, not of disorder and, and of chaos. You, you are a God of life and not of death, and, and so we know that uh, it grieves uh, you um, to see death and to see turmoil, uh, and we pray. Um, we do particularly pray uh, for the church uh, in Afghanistan, uh, for Christians who um, have been threatened uh, quite credibly um, with their lives, with imprisonment. Um, Lord, for those who are trying to get out, um, would you please help them? Um, would you please uh, enable uh, governments and, and aid agencies uh to, to have the resources to, to get people out uh, who need to get out. But Lord, we know that there are many who have pledged to stay. Uh, we know that there are um, missionaries, there are pastors, there are Christians, there are churches that are 
that are rooted there, that that's, that's their home, that's where they are, um, uh, and, and they have pledged to stay uh, and to bear witness uh, to you, even um, as they have to meet in secret. Um, Father, we, we pray uh, for safety for them, but, but we also pray, uh, as we'll even talk about in, in this passage and in this sermon, um, that you would, um, yes, deliver them from suffering, but that you would also sanctify their suffering, uh, that, that through it, uh, a witness uh, to the hope um, that our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan have in Christ would, would shine out um, and, and would even change the hearts of the Taliban themselves, um, uh, that they would wonder um, at those who are, are willing uh, to sacrifice their lives um, for their faith, for you. Um, Lord, we pray for the people of Haiti uh, who have been suffering a political crisis and, and, and now in the past week have gotten hit by an earthquake uh, and uh, a storm as well. Um, Lord, again, would you speed aid uh, to them and would you bear up uh, those uh, who call on your name uh, to be able to serve uh, and to be able to um, give a defense for the hope uh, that, they, that they have in you, even in the midst of, of these circumstances. Um, so, Father, it is, it is a week when we are mindful of how richly we have been blessed, and we remember uh, the words of Scripture that, that say that from those to whom much has been given, much has been expected. And, and at the moment, um, we offer our prayers, uh, we offer our hearts, we offer uh, ourselves to attend uh, to your word and to put our hope in you just as our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, in Haiti, uh, around the world, in China. There are, the church is large <laughs> across time and space, uh, and its circumstances um, are, are often fraught. And Lord, we are grateful to know that we are bound together with them, and, and even as we don't directly suffer what they suffer, um, yet we are called to lift them up, and we're grateful that we can do that. Um, Father, as we uh, come now uh, to sit under your word, um, we, we pray as we always do, um, that through it you would accomplish your purposes to shape us and form us more and more uh, into the likeness of your Son, both individually in ways that would be evident as we are scattered throughout the city during the week, uh, and also corporately gathered here, um, and in other ways, that this body would reflect the character of your Son uh, to, uh, to the city to which you've sent us. Lord, uh, I pray, as I always do, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, as we turn to this passage... Um, this, is, this is a good one to hit a couple of the main points that Peter has been, has been hitting on uh, throughout this entire letter. Two in particular, um, remind you of just you know, things that we've been saying. You know, one is this notion um, that it is, it is because Christians um, are sojourners, exiles, strangers in a strange land, as it were, whose hope lies uh, in some sense in another world, um, in another age, what we would say, call an eschatological hope. Um, ironically, it's because of that hope that we can serve this world, uh, that we can be of good uh, to the place uh, where, where God has sent us and, and seek its welfare. Um, and then the other one, 
has to do with suffering. Um, here Peter is continuing, as he did last week, is continuing to directly address uh, suffering and the possibility of suffering. And you remember that one of the things that we have said um, is that for Peter, the suffering of Christians is not some um, exercise in endurance. Um, it has a point. It has a purpose. Uh, and that purpose is that God would be glorified. And this week I would, I would add, um, Peter has said several times, I'll, I'll give you a few examples in a moment, um, he has said several times um, that God would be glorified uh, at the end of all things. He said it in, in a few different ways. And so we, here we actually see these two things coming together, that, that part of the eschatological hope, part of our hope for what will happen uh, in the end is that God will be glorified in the suffering of his people by means of. Uh, the, the suffering of his people. Um, these are the things that we're going to be looking at uh, today. Um, it, 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 it has been a week when I have been very mindful of the fact that the suffering that we experience um, is of a different order from the suffering of our brothers and sisters um, in, in, other, in other nations uh, where the church is, is persecuted. Of course, Afghanistan uh, has, has been very much on our minds uh, this week. Um, I don't want to downplay in any sense um, the, the suffering that, that we experience, um, that it's hard to be a Christian um, where we live, um, that it can make us seem strange, uh, that it can make us seem weird, um, but it is different. Uh, from having our, our lives uh, be, be threatened. And so I've been mindful of these two, these two different kinds of, of suffering. Peter seems to be writing to people who are actually more in our situation as he's writing. Um, we, we said this before. We, we think that he's writing before major persecution has begun in the Roman Empire. So Christians are not yet being imprisoned, tortured, put to death. Um, we know that that's coming. Um, and Peter probably knew that it was a possibility um, and if you look at verse 12 of chapter 4, the very first verse that we'll be looking at next week, um, you, you'll see him beginning to address that and saying, you know, if this happens, don't be surprised by it. Um, for this week, as I said, um, the point that I think that he's, he's trying to drive home um, is that in the suffering uh, of the church, um, there's a purpose. There is meaning that Christ would be glorified at the end of all things. Let me, let me show you these examples of, of what I mean, um, that he has hit this point before, and he keeps tying it to this end, to this goal, this eschatological hope. Um, right at the beginning of the letter, 1 Peter 1, he said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, this is verse 6, sorry, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that... Okay, so here's the purpose statement. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see how he ties together that goal of praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he wasn't talking about suffering per se, but he said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that... When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he keeps tying these things together. 
Um, this week, we'll, 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 see this, we'll see this again. Um, Peter's goal, we're going to look at three things. Peter's goal for us and for his readers is that in the midst of suffering, God would be glorified, firstly, in what we think, secondly, in how we live, and thirdly, in our love for one another. And all of this continues to be motivated by an eschatological hope, not an eschatological fear. You know, so when he's, gonna, when he's talking about the end of all things and this judgment that's coming, for Christians, this is a source of great hope uh, and not of fear. And that is what's going to motivate God being glorified through what we think, how we live, and in our love for one another. So let's first look uh, at these first two verses uh, to see him talking about God glorified in what we think. Um, these are a couple confusing verses. Um, let me read these again, just the, the first two of chapter 4. He said, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, the confusing parts, and there's a few, um, are what is this same way of thinking? What are we supposed to be thinking about? Are we supposed to be thinking about Christ suffering in the flesh, or are we supposed to be thinking like Christ who suffered in the flesh? That's one question. Another question is, what does he mean, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Who is he talking about there? Is he talking about Jesus' suffering in the flesh? and how that put an end to sin, or is he talking about us in some way? Um, here's the thing. I think that the way that faith works, the way that our salvation works, um, is that it's actually both of these things. Um, that not only are they not a contradiction, but that there's actually uh, almost a cause-effect relationship, that as we think about Christ we think more like Christ. As we look at what Christ has done and rest on that, put our trust in that, make that our identity, his identity and his character is formed more and more in us. So it actually can be both of these things at the same time. Let me, let me unpack this a little bit. Um, so, so there's a few reasons to think here that Peter definitely is thinking about Christ's suffering in the flesh and the way that Christ thought about that, um, what was in his mind as he went, as he went to the cross. Um, a couple of them are just in, in the words themselves. Um, the way he talks about suffering, you know, the grammar of it refers to something that's done and over and in the past. So that would tend to make you think, okay, he's talking about the cross primarily as opposed to anything ongoing. Um, in, in our lives. Um, when he says, um, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, possibly a better way of translating that is to say, is done with sin, has, has put it to an end. And again, you think about the effect of Christ's death was that he put an end to sin, that he defeated it, that sin had done its worst uh, in him, and that by his death and resurrection, he showed its, its powerlessness uh, over him. Um, notice especially the therefore, 
right? So when I was growing up, I remember one of my pastors saying frequently from the pulpit, you know, whenever there's a therefore in Scripture, you should ask what it's there for. And that's terrible and corny, right? But I remembered it, and so will you, because it's terrible and corny. Um, but it's true, right? If you see a therefore, that's a, you should look up in, in the passage. Uh, not up from your Bible, up in the passage. Um, and, and say, okay, so there, because of what? Therefore what? What Peter has just been talking about, remember from last week, um, is how baptism unites us to Christ um, and, and provides us salvation by means of an appeal to a good conscience because baptism unites us to Christ, which brings us through God's wrath, the way the ark brought uh, Noah and his family uh, through, through the flood. Um, what all of this means, if, if Peter is primarily thinking here um, and, and trying to put in front of his people, here is how Christ suffered in the flesh and think about his mind um, in, in going to the cross and how what he did puts an end to sin. All of this simply means that, as is so often the case, the Bible is reminding us of what God has done before it tells us what we should therefore do. We sometimes say the indicative precedes the imperative. Okay, What God has done precedes what we should do. Although, I don't know if you've been noticing this with Peter, he goes back and forth between exhortation and look at Jesus so frequently that it, it, it's not even so much that the indicative precedes the imperative. It's almost like you know, the indicative is of what God has done is that in which the imperative lives and moves and has its being, right? It just kind of swims around and is surrounded by what God has done. Um, I think Peter is doing the same thing uh, again, again here. Um, so what is it that we're supposed to be thinking about then as we see Christ? What, what, what is it that we're supposed to be reminded of? Um, why did Christ suffer? Um, remember in the Gospel of John? This has been a long time. Actually, not two months. Remember how frequently in John the word glory was coming up? And we kept saying um, that in John's Gospel, when Jesus talks about God being glorified and that being his purpose, um, he's always talking about the cross, that that's where God is supremely going to be glorified. Um, in, in him. And that was the reason uh, for which he came. Hebrews maybe says it even more um, personally, evocatively, when it says that we need to look at Jesus uh, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And what was that joy? Well, on the one hand, it was that God would be glorified. But, but what is it that Jesus actually stood to gain? What, what did Jesus not have before he went to the cross? The only thing is us. It's his bride, his reward for enduring that suffering is that because of that, he wins for himself a people. He wins for himself you. In other words, when you read that verse that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, you can say he endured the cross for me. 
in order to win me, in order to gain me. Um, Peter is reminding us to put that truth at the very center of who we are. You know, if you're an approval-driven person like me, um, you're always more moved and impressed to win the approval of somebody who's really impressive, right? Somebody who's higher up, higher status. Who could possibly have higher status than the God of the universe, than the one who created it all? Jesus, the one through whom it was all created. And he endured the cross for you. The problem isn't that you're an approval-driven person. The, the problem is whose approval you've put at the center of your being. Put his approval at the center. It's unshakable. It's unchanging. Um, and, and, this, and this, I think, is where the move gets made from thinking about Jesus to being able to think like Jesus, right? Because if we have that unshakable, unchanging identity... Um, at the core of who we are, then I think that's exactly what Peter means when he says, arm yourselves. Listen to that military language. There's a struggle ahead of you. Get ready. You need something solid. Um, arm yourselves with this sense of, of, of what Jesus um, has, has done for you. And then you're able to think like Christ. That's when we're, like we said last week, united in having the mind of Christ, whose suffering was indicative of the powerlessness of sin in his life. You know, when, when Jesus suffered, whether it was in the wilderness, in the garden, on the cross, what he was demonstrating was that despite all of the temptations that he endured, and again, Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way that we are. But again and again, he said no to those things. Because he had particularly strong character? I think it's simply because Jesus' heart was only lifted up to God. Jesus' first and only love was his Father. Jesus didn't, again, it's not just an endurance in exercise to suffer. Um, it's about what we love. Um, if we put the love of God at the center of our lives. Um, if that is more precious to us than any other things, then we're willing and able to suffer the loss of all the rest. That's what we see Jesus doing. And that's one of the ways that his image gets formed in us um, over, over time. Um, you know, there's a couple places in, in Scripture, and, and we don't like these, that talks about how God uses suffering for our good, right? Um, so there's a couple places that talks about God being a, like a good father who disciplines his children. Maybe the hardest, uh, in the middle of Psalm 119, there's a couple places where the psalmist says, um, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Um, at one point he even says, it was good for me that I was afflicted because now I pay attention to your word. Um, those are hard verses. Uh, we, don't, we don't like these. Um, let me read something that's maybe even more bracing for you. Um, this is from early 19th century. This is Archibald Alexander, who was the first president of Princeton uh, Seminary. Um, this is a long quote, so bear with me. 
This is, this is from his uh, thoughts on religious experience. He says, for your more rapid growth in grace, some of you will be cast into the furnace of affliction. Sickness, bereavement, bad conduct of children and relatives, loss of property or of reputation may come upon you unexpectedly and press heavily on you. In these trying circumstances, exercise patience and fortitude. Be more solicitous to have the affliction sanctified than removed. Glorify God while in the fire of adversity. That faith which is most tried is commonly most pure and precious. Learn from Christ how you ought to suffer. Let perfect submission to the will of God be aimed at. Never indulge a murmuring or discontented spirit. Repose with confidence on the promises. Commit all your cares to God. Make known your requests to Him by prayer and supplication. Let go your too eager grasp of the world. And then this is a good one. Become familiar with death and the grave. Wait patiently until your change comes, but desire not to live a day longer than may be for the glory of God. Listen, I want to be clear about this. There's nothing in the Bible that says that suffering is a good thing. There's nothing that says that we should seek it out. Um, you know, we don't have to turn the world upside down and say that good is evil and evil is good. What the Bible says is that God is so powerful, that he is so sovereign, that he is able to use suffering, which in itself is not good, for good purposes, without having to make it into a good thing. He can work through what is not good uh, for our good. And Peter is calling us to remember that. Um, primarily, first of all, by considering Jesus and his sufferings on the cross. So that's, that's where Peter wants God to be glorified in how we think, in what we believe, uh, in, in where we place our trust. He moves on then to talk about how we live. Um, in, verses, in verses 3 to 6, and you'll notice that for the first time, as I read it, when Peter talks about the passions of the flesh, he, he kind of starts talking about the things that we thought he would have been talking about all along when he said the passions of the flesh. Interestingly, before, when he talked about the passions of the flesh, where he went was um, the need for us to be subject to every human institution. Now, for the first time, you know, he's, he's talking about things like debauchery. Um, now, let me say a couple things that he's not doing here. One thing is that he's not giving his readers something to boast about. He's, he's not saying, you know, here's these, here are these wicked people over here pursuing the passions of the flesh, and of course you would never do that. Um, he's already explicitly said, um, he's talked about the passions of your former ignorance back in, back in chapter 1. Um, and so these, we can, we can gather from that, would be things that his readers would have been well familiar with. Um, these are things that they have left behind, but that they once uh, partook in. He's also not saying that the struggle with sin is over. Um, what he's been saying all through here um, is that we've been set free from the power of sin. Because we now understand ourselves to be servants of God in whose service is perfect freedom, as opposed to um, people who think that they're free, but in fact are enslaved um, to, their, to their appetites. Um, 
what he points out is just the, um, just the strangeness, again, the difficulty, the strangeness, the weirdness of being people um, surrounded by, um, uh, by worldliness um, and, and, and abstaining from it. He says that, that, that they are surprised when they don't see you partaking. That might have been personal, right? If they used to be participating in these things, you can imagine their former friends and colleagues saying, come on, we know you. Um, why aren't you doing this anymore? Um, it says that they're surprised and they, and they malign you. Um, it hurts. It hurts to get judged uh, for abstaining from things that the world thinks of as just normal, um, just, just what's to be expected. Um, we live in a world where varying degrees of violence and poverty um, and sexual promiscuity and greed, um, racism and sexism are, are all just kind of normal, just kind of baked in. Um, David Wells used to teach up at the seminary, and he had a great definition of what worldliness is. He said, worldliness is simply anything that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. Anything that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. You know, a question for us to ask ourselves would be, is there anything in our lives, anything in the way that we live our lives, um, that's actually difficult for our neighbors or our colleagues to understand? Anything that just is, is unintelligible to them? Um, anything where it seems like we're giving up things that we don't have to give up? Um, and where the question comes, why? What are you holding out for? What do you have that's so much better? Um, Peter encouraged us earlier to be ready to defend the hope that we have uh, in, in Christ and, and reminds us now um, that there is a judgment coming. Remember before, he encouraged us to look at Jesus who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Um, he uses similar language again here um, to talk about the, the judgment um, that, 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 is, that is coming. Um, and this is where he gets to the end of all things. So in these last few verses, um, he shifts tack again. And now he's talking about his hope that God will be glorified in the love that we have for each other. Um, but again, first, he says, the end of all things is at hand. And he encourages us to live in light of that, live in light of the end. Now, what does that mean? Um, okay, so I've been talking about an eschatological hope, and so you might have been wondering, am I ever going to talk about eschatology? Am I going to talk about the last things? Um, I am, but maybe not in the way you're hoping for, so it might, it might be a little disappointing. Um, when Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, um, Paul says similar things in some of his letters. Jesus uh, said similar things right before the, the, the end of his life. Um, saying that, that the end was, was near. What this means um, is not necessarily that it is immediate, you know, that it is coming in a short time span. Here's what it means. Um, nothing else has to happen before Jesus comes again. Jesus has been crucified. 
He was raised. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. An angel said, you'll see him coming in the same way. Um, and from that point, we are living in what the New Testament calls the last days. Um, those last days have stretched on for almost 2,000 years. And, and we do not know how much longer they will stretch. It's, it's, it's kind of funny how there is a cottage industry of people trying to figure out you know, exactly when the end is going to come. And they'll even use the Bible to do it. They'll, they'll search, they'll try to find the clues in the Bible and somehow miss the clue where Jesus says, even I don't know the day and the hour, no one's going to know. Um, but the point is, um, his return is imminent. It could be at any minute. And are we living as though that's the case? Um, here's an example of, of what this means. If I'm, if I'm watching my friend compete in the Boston Marathon, right, what I do is I stake out a, a place on ComAv, right, and I wait. Um, you know, and I, I may have some sense of, of, of when he's coming by. I know how fast he is as a runner, but maybe it's a hot day and it's possible that, you know, it's going to be affected by that. So I just kind of have to wait, and I have to wait. And it doesn't matter. At some point, I know he could come by at any minute, right? And if, if I go, you know, uh, to, to, to get a drink or, or, or take a break or whatever, you know, I could miss him coming by. And it doesn't matter if I wait there for five minutes or ten minutes or half an hour or two hours. At any point in there, he could come by at any minute. Um, that's the sense of, of, of what Peter is, is saying here and what Jesus means and the apostles when they say that the end is, is at hand. Um, there's, an, there's an urgency to this. Um, one of the things that I love about our confession um, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, it actually does have a chapter on the last things, on the end times. Um, and and if, if you're familiar with all of the debates, you know, premillennial and postmillennial, um, if you're not, if you don't know those words for now, don't worry. It's not that big a deal for the moment. Um, but, but if you're familiar with those debates, you know, you go to Westminster and think, you know, what's it going to say about this? You know what Westminster says about eschatology, about the last things? It just says two things. It says, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead, so take courage. And the second thing it says is, you don't know when that's going to be, so stay awake. And that's it. That's, that's eschatology, according to the Westminster Confession. Now, you know, these guys in the 16th century, they were 17th century, they were wordier than that, so it's a few more words than what I just said. But that's basically all it says. Jesus is coming back, so take courage. You don't know when. So stay awake. Um, be ready. Prepare yourself. Um, notice there's another therefore in verse 7. Notice the implication of this urgency for Peter, right? Is it panic? No. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Um, I had this funny picture in my head of a guy walking around with a sandwich board, and on the front it says, the end is near. And on the back, it says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Um, it's not what you expect, right? See, walking around, uh, walking around Fenway. Um, I actually thought, you know, we could, we could, we could maybe uh, update. You know that, that keep calm and carry on, um, that, that slogan that originated in England in, in World War II, um, and, and now it's become a meme. Um, 
you know, but, but perhaps Peter is saying something like, keep calm and wait on the Lord. Keep calm. Come, Lord Jesus. Um, in the midst of all kinds of turmoil, keep calm. Come, Lord Jesus. Um, again, we're being pushed towards eschatological hope. Take courage. Jesus is coming again. And he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Um, in the middle of emergency, in the middle of panic, is prayer the first place that you go? Um, it's hard. It's hard to go to prayer first. In the middle of panic and urgency and emergency, we want to get doing, right? We want to get to solving the problem uh, and, 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 and working on things. Um, but Peter reminds us, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded uh, for the sake of our prayers. Um, Martin Luther had this great, he, he, he told a friend of his, you know, he prays, he said, I pray one hour every day, unless I have a really busy day, and then I pray for two hours. Um, that's probably the right, that's probably the right attitude to have. The more we have to worry about, the more we have to be anxious about, the more um, we should be, we should be praying. Um, I mentioned David Wells earlier, and he, he had a great quote about this, about um, uh, about petitionary prayer, petitionary prayer being, you know, prayer where we ask God for help, right? He said, it must be asserted that petitionary prayer only flourishes where there's a twofold belief. First, that God's name is hallowed too irregularly, his kingdom has come too little, and his will is done too infrequently. Second, that God himself can change that situation. In other words, Petitionary prayer flourishes when you believe that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and you believe that ultimately only God can do anything about that, and that he will, that ultimately God can and he will set things right. This ultimately is going to happen, Peter has talked about the day of visitation, right, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, but but we bear witness to it now. And this is, and this is where, I think it's interesting that from, from this verse, Peter starts talking about how we need to love each other, love each other earnestly. Because see, we bear witness to what God will do by means of the way that we live with each other now. Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality without grumbling. Um, that word hospital hospitality um, is philozenos, which flip that around and it sounds like xenophilia, which that would be the opposite of xenophobia. So you know what xenophobia is? Xenophobia is the fear of strangers, the fear of those who are not like you, the fear of the other. Um, Christians are to be just the opposite. Hospitality means reaching out towards those who are not like us, welcoming the stranger, welcoming the other. And he says, we need to realize in our life together, our life is fed by what he calls God's varied grace. This is in verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Um, 
you know, in a sense, you could say the grace that saves us is kind of all the same for all, you know, we're all justified um, equally. Um, we are all completely cleansed of our sin and completely given the status of sons and daughters. Um, and yet there's variety uh, in, in, in this sort of grace. There's variety in the gifts that God has given uh, to, his, to his people. Um, Ed Clowney, um, a president of Westminster Seminary, um, says that when Paul uses the image of the body of Christ, um, what he means is that all the members are needed, gifts are for the body as a whole, and isolation is tragic, and diversity of function produces not division, but unity. Um, what Peter is encouraging us towards is to realize, first of all, that every one of us um, has been gifted for service to the church. Every one of us has been gifted in some way to love one another earnestly, uh, to serve uh, in the church. Not in a way that could ever be a source of pride, because A, it's a gift, um, and B, because they're all interdependent. We all need each other. We all depend on all of the gifts um, as we're being built together into this spiritual house, um, as we're being built together into one body, to use Paul's metaphor in 1 Corinthians. Um, we need all these gifts. We need um, all of these parts. So there's two questions that come out of this. One um, would be, how has God gifted you, and are you, are you finding those opportunities to serve? Um, if you're not, if you're not sure how God has gifted you, um, there's a few things you can do. You can pray. You can pray that God would, would show that. But I would encourage you not even to do that by yourself. I would encourage you to do that in community with people who know you. That could be your prayer pod. It could be your community group. It could be with one of the pastors or the elders. Um, don't be surprised, by the way, if people encourage you that you may have been gifted in a way that's not the one you were hoping for. Um, you know, we, we, we tend to elevate certain gifts uh, and, and not others. And, and honestly, so much the worse for the church when we do that, because they're all needed. Um, Peter here talks about gifts of both speaking and service. They're all needed uh, in, in, in the church. That's one question to ask. How has God gifted you, and how are you serving? But the other one is, in what ways are you tangibly, like in, in the way you're living your life, in what ways are you recognizing your need for the gifts of others in this body? Um, in what ways are you dependent on anybody else here? Are you? It's really easy to live the life of the solo Christian. It's really easy to get used to a way of life that basically says, I can do this on my own. And Peter would say, that just doesn't work. You know, that is like an eye. I'm going to use Paul's imagery again. That's like an eye saying, well, I can see, and so I'm fine, despite the fact that it can't get itself around without the feet. Um, in what way are you tangibly uh, dependent on, on the gifts of others? That can extend even beyond this body. In what way are we as a church dependent on the gifts that God has given to the rest of the church? Um, do we understand our need for our brothers and sisters around the world, including the ones who are being persecuted? 
including the ones who are in places of weakness. Um, For a long time, I've heard uh, encouragements from um, uh, church planters, uh, from people that have thought a lot about church planting in our in our denomination, that that it's important that that churches and groups of churches regularly gather together to tell um, gospel stories. Um, you know, and I, and I think that's a way of telling about the ways that God has gifted us, the ways that he's been gracious to us, and being encouraged by that. Um, the one thing that I would encourage us to consider is whether gospel stories always have to be happy stories, um, whether they always have to be triumphant stories. Um, if, if it's really the case that God can work for our good in the midst of suffering as individuals, um, then maybe some of these gospel stories um, actually need to be stories about struggle, actually need to be stories about pain. Um, and this would be true not just for, you know, church planters getting together and pastors talking to each other. This would be true throughout the church. One of the ways that I think that we depend on each other, one of the ways that we are gifted by each other is when members of this body are willing to be vulnerable and to say, right now, I am struggling, and I am in the middle of the storm. I am, I am in the furnace. I am, I am in the tunnel, and I don't see the light. Um, because that gives us the opportunity to bear each other's burdens. That gives us the opportunity not just to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also to weep with those who weep. These are things that Scripture tells us we're supposed to be doing. Um, we depend uh, on each other being vulnerable in that way uh, for that to happen. Because if, if what the church is supposed to be doing is bearing witness now as the world is not the way it's supposed to be to a God who one day will make it the way it is supposed to be, uh, set it to right, who will restore everything, uh, who will judge righteously, judge justly. Um, one of the ways one of the most important ways that we can do that would be to be a church where our weakness is put on display so that the strength of Jesus Christ would shine all the more brightly. Um, we're about to become, we're about to come to a table um, that is all about our need. I mean, every meal is, right? We eat because we're hungry. We eat because we're dependent. We eat because without food, we grow weak and we die. Um, it's a good thing uh, that we put um, this meal uh, into our worship service to remind us every week, um, really, of the same thing that God's Word says, um, that we depend on Him, uh, that where we are weak, uh, he is strong, that in the midst of suffering, um, he is working for the good of those who love him. So before we come to this meal, let's pray together.